Welcome to Indie Matters, the show from the Nevada Independent. I'm your host, Joey Lovato, up here in Reno. And I'm reporter and producer Jacob Solis down in Las Vegas. On this episode of Indie Matters, reporter Jasmine Orozco-Rodriguez gets a chance to sit down with the 2021 National Teacher of the Year, Juliana Urtube, who teaches special education in Clark County and is the first Nevadan to win the honor. After that, I sat down with legislative reporter Riley Snyder and assistant editor Michelle Rendells to talk about the end of the 2021 legislative session. We go over the mining tax increase, changes to how elections will work, possible special sessions, and more. At the end of the show, I get to talk with editor John Ralston about his thoughts on the 2021 legislative session. He's covered sessions all the way back to the 80s, and he shares what he thinks made this one a little bit different. Juliana Ortube is a bilingual special education teacher at Kerman Booker Elementary School in Las Vegas. She was recently named the National Teacher of the Year, becoming the first teacher from Nevada to receive the award. She immigrated to the U.S. when she was five from Colombia and is also the first Latina in at least 16 years to have received the award. Our reporter Jasmine Orozco-Rodriguez sat down with Ortube to talk about her philosophy as a teacher and how she hopes the profession will evolve. So that that element of representation is an important part of that for you. Do you think that your achievement will help inspire your students who identify as Latino or immigrant, come from immigrant backgrounds? I do think that it'll help inspire not just my students and their communities, but other teachers across the country. And the beautiful thing is that we're a community of people of color, and so we're inclusive of all the folks of color walking all sorts of different lines, first generation folks, second generation folks, basically all folks, right? When we see ourselves represented in positions like this, it's really exciting. And I know this is true because I have teacher friends from across the country who write me, who tell me that their students are so excited. I have friends and even people that I don't know writing me messages about how they watch the announcement on CBS with their daughters and how exciting it was for their daughters to be given a mirror on such a national stage. And it just goes to show that we are more powerful when we are representative and inclusive of all people. Um, One thing that stood out to me was you've said that you want to promote a joyous and just education, where teachers work with families and communities to address injustice, racism, and gaps in access to resources. How have these issues, how have you seen that these issues affect your students? So my platform is a joyous and just education because as an educator, I'm really diverse. I'm a special education teacher. So I work with students with learning and thinking differences. I'm also a teacher of the majority of my students are linguistically gifted. And so a lot of the times we need to embrace the community in order to teach the child. And so when I say a joyous and just education, I don't just mean it for the child. I mean that we are providing a joyous and just education for children and their families and their communities. And so by joyous, I mean that everybody has a sense of belonging within a school, teachers included. This is a really important time for us to acknowledge how much we need to embrace teachers, acknowledge their hard work and treat them as professionals. And just because we understand that there are inequities that lie within our school systems and that we need to work collectively with our students' voices guiding the way in order to address those inequities, in order to redesign things that are not working in education, and in order to bring as many people forward as possible. 
Yeah. And what you're, you're promoting on this platform as national teacher of the year to promote joyous and just education. How do you see the role of teachers in that pursuit and how can teachers help to achieve that? So we know that the number one determinant of a child's academic success is their teacher. So we know that if we invest in teacher, in teacher leadership, in teacher support, teachers are capable, they're wonderful professionals who um, often don't get treated like professionals. And so if we uplift teachers in the deserving way of treating them like professionals, giving them the tools that they need, then we're also uplifting students. And so the teacher's role in this is to continue to teach our heart out. So we have done so much more than teaching in this last year. We have made sure our students are safe, that they're well, that they have tools that they need, not only for learning, but for their well-being. Teachers are centering social and emotional learning, meaning that we're focusing on it, not just as like an extra add-in, but as a part of something that we teach in everything, right? Who am I as a person? How do my emotions play into my learning? How can I manage my emotions? How can I manage conflict with others so that I can collaborate with others? How can I also see others and make space for everybody, right? So these are really important lessons and skills that our students need to have. And so teachers modeling these skills create critical spaces in our schools for everybody to have a vital role. And so in addition to lead teacher leadership centering stu students' social and emotional learning, Teacher's job is to keep pushing, keep pushing for what we know our students need, keep raising our voices when we know that certain policies or certain laws might negatively impact our communities. It's that collective voice that really is going to transform education. You mentioned that teachers fill this critical role in the life of the youngest ones of the community across the state. And what do you think the state or local communities could do to further support teachers in this role or to see them as the professionals that you are expressing that they are? I think part of it is the relationships that we have with our children's teacher, our neighborhood teachers. Give you an example. My school, Booker, Kermit Booker Elementary School, our namesake, the family, the Booker family still comes to the school once a month and they treat the teachers to lunch, right? And every time they stick around and they hang out and they talk to the teachers and they say, thank you. Thank you for teaching our students. That sh demonstration of gratitude with respect is really, really important. It's not an empty thank you. It's, it's quite meaningful because it's tied to a relationship. So I think the first thing we need to do is have relationships with the teachers that not only serve our, our, our very own children, but are the, the children in our community. The second is to ask teachers, what do you need? What's working? What's not working? As a country, we're shifting from an era where teachers were held accountable in a way that didn't include their voice to shifting to this way of teachers' voices leading policy work, Right. And so when we develop relationships with policymakers, lawmakers, administration, not just at our school, but at a district or state level, then we're making sure that teachers' voices are included. And teachers always carry their students' voices with them. So we're, we're the ones having the conversation on the ground with the families, with the students, what's working, what's not working, what do you need, right? And then we can get to this point where we ask families, what do you want? Right now, the equity issue is what do you need? 
the justice issue, the joyous and just is what do you want? And so that's what uh, a joyous and just education is, is including the wants and needs of a family. And so I'm wondering as a teacher, what are your wants and your needs? As a teacher, I think one of the first things, and again, I count myself, I shouldn't count myself lucky, but I do count myself lucky. My students had access to food during this entire pandemic. Breakfast and lunch, that's huge. My students had access to the tools that they needed to learn. I'm so lucky to be part of a school that really listens to teachers and says, hey, what do you all need? Oh, you need training on this? Okay, let me find a way to do it. Would you all prefer to do it you know, on your own? Or do you want us to find somebody? Or do you want us to train somebody to do it? And really responsive in that way. So I think first, teachers want their students' needs met. Because that means that we can spend more time on the academic and the creative part of learning. I believe every school should have a counselor and all of our high needs schools should have social workers in, in addition to a counselor. And I believe teachers deserve the space for reflection. Sometimes teachers have so much on their plate that we can't invest in ourselves to really give that high level thinking to our practice. And so I wish that we would do that more, that we would provide more financial um, support so teachers could do programs like that that really feed them as educators. And then I also wish that in Nevada in particular, which we have smaller class sizes, but nothing in education is simple because we can't have smaller class sizes until we increase teacher retention. There are plenty of people out there who would love to be a teacher. We have to do the hard work of improving our profession where people see it as a viable lifelong career because they're treated as professionals, they're paid as professionals, and the work-life balance is manageable and it's fair. I know that during this last year, my colleagues and I worked double, triple time. And so I hope that we um, find a way to support teachers. We don't need necessarily more learning. We just need more teacher-guided learning and we need more time to be able to take those deep dives. Thank you so much for taking the time today. Thank you. If you'd like to read Jasmine's full story on Ertube, you can find her written piece on our website, thenevadaindependent.com. We are now almost one week from the end of the 2021 regular legislative session here in Nevada, and as we watch the dust settle, we here at Indie Matters thought it would be a good time to invite some of our star legislative team to break down what just happened and what it all means. Joining me now to dig into the biggest bills are legislative reporter Riley Snyder and assistant editor Michelle Rendells. Riley, Michelle, thanks for joining me. Of course, Jacob. Thanks for having us. All right. So the first thing I want to do, and this is one of the biggest things that I think a lot of people were tracking, was the mining tax, or at least an additional tax burden on the mining industry. This has been an issue since last year when the state was dealing with massive revenue shortfalls uh, amid the coronavirus shutdowns. And the issue has changed a lot in the time since. So I guess as a baseline, what did the legislature actually do at the end of the day on the mining tax? Yeah, so just in terms of like not getting into all the background and stuff, they introduced a bill. When I say they, I mean Assembly Speaker Jason Frierson introduced a bill on Saturday evening, last Saturday, that created a new excise tax on gold and silver mine profits above $20 million. It's a higher rate above, I think, $150 million. That's expected to bring in anywhere from $150 million to $170 million in new tax revenue to the state. That's like 
over the two years of the budget cycle. And that is just one part of kind of this complex moving series of parts that was the final mining tax deal compromise deal to close the legislative session. So that bill also moved the existing net proceeds of minerals tax, which is in place, and it will now allocate those tax dollars directly to the state's education budget. So that's about $300 million over the two years of the biennium, all coming from taxes on the mining industry. It also will appropriate $200 million of federal money that the state is going to get through the American Rescue Plan Act to learning loss programs through COVID. The bill also did some things on Medicaid. It directs the Interim Legislative Education Committee to study school board makeup, so appointed versus elected school boards. It includes base funding for opportunity scholarships, which are a tax credit program where companies donate money to a scholarship organization that's given to low-income families to go to private schools. This was a big ask by Republicans. So all in all, it was kind of a big smorgasbord of a bill. It was heard on Sunday evening and then like processed very quickly through the legislative process on Monday, the final day of the session. So all in all, it really, it puts about $500 million towards education over the next two years, although only, you know, about a third of that is actually new revenue. This is host Joey Lovato. I'm going to interject here for just a second. And uh, Michelle Rendells and I actually talked to Republican Heidi Gansert about the mining tax and its effect on education. Well, education's always been a priority. And when mining came to the table and offered new resources, in addition to what we were able to add back, it was really important to me. And also school choice. When you look at charter schools and being able to fund some um, Title I locations, if you look at the stats, most of them are minority children and they're all low income. And so again, it's just, it, it's, it's good for them to be able to find something that fits. And then also just opportunity scholarships. That's always been something um, that's been on my list because some kids just don't fit. It, it, it may be because the, um, they may have learning disabilities, they may have issues with a particular school, and a lot of times um, they too live in underperforming school areas. That accomplishes what progressive advocates have long wanted, which is to raise the tax on the mining industry. They say it's not paying its fair share, and it has a sweetheart deal dating back to the 1860s. So they actually got on board with this. They said, this is a first step. It's a small down payment, but okay, we're, we're in support of it. So that kind of cleared the way for the bill to to move through the passed by the Democratic caucus. And also the education provisions ended up attracting the necessary couple of Republicans to get this through. Okay, so switching gears a little bit, something else the legislature had to deal with this year that it was also a consequence of stuff that happened in 2020 was a lot of changes to voting and sort of the mechanics of how Nevada votes. So amid the coronavirus, a lot of changes were made to expand access to mail-in balloting, as many people already know. And the legislature took steps to continue a lot of those uh, measures. Can you break down exactly what they did and what voting now looks like in the state of Nevada? Yeah. So just as a brief recap for those who um, are trying to block 2020 out of their memory. So in the primary election, the Secretary of State used uh, a process that already existed in state law and regulations to send mail ballots out to active registered voters. Lawmakers then met in a special session later in 2020 to approve a bill called AB4 that explicitly required the state to mail out mail ballots to active registered voters. Active registered voters just means people who have their address on file and current with uh, state and local election officials. And so 
Republicans uh, did not like AB4. It was a very partisan issue. President Trump's campaign sued over it. You know, there were a lot of unfounded claims of voter fraud about mass mail-in balloting that's never been found to be true in any court cases or any research. The Secretary of State, a Republican, has said there's no evidence of that. But nonetheless, Democrats heading into 2021 saw the mail-in voting numbers and decided that this is the direction that they wanted the state to go in. So they introduced a bill called AB321. So seeing those numbers, because again, there were options to vote in person in the 2020 general election. Again, Assembly Speaker Jason Fireson introduced this bill, AB321, that permanently codifies a lot of the things that were in AB4 from the 2020 special session. So if you're an active registered voter in Nevada and you don't opt out of the provisions, you're going to be sent a mail ballot for both the primary and the general election. There are some changes in terms of how long clerks have to count mail ballots after an election, how many days after an election you have to fix any issues with your signature, things like that. And that also included an appropriation of, I think, $12 million, $12.2 million over the two years of the budget cycle to pay for the cost of ballots and ballot stock and post and, and, and all that stuff. So that was probably the, the, the biggest election push and really a fundamental change in how the state will conduct elections going forward. There were a few other measures that made it out related to elections. Probably the other biggest behind the scenes one is moving to a top-down voter system, being able to keep things more transparent and up-to-date, ensuring that like if you move from Las Vegas to Pahrump, which is in Nye County, your registration is updated in a much more uh, expedited fashion than having to like mail a postcard back to the Nye County clerk who then mails it to the Secretary of State. So the idea is to make that more efficient. That's an effort to also prevent what we saw in November 2020, which is it took a long time while the world was watching Nevada to get our official results. And that was because there's same day voter registration, but you have to really be careful that that you're vetting that and making sure people that registered the same day in Nye County hadn't already also voted in Clark County. And so it's harder when you have all these separate systems going on. So part of that is to to just kind of speed up the process. All right. Well, finally, right when the session started, there was already discussion of a special session, that there was not going to be time enough to get to everything the legislature was going to need to do in the 120 days allotted to it. Well, the session is over. Are we any closer to a special session? Yes, because we know for sure that we will have to do a special session to complete the redistricting process. Collection of U.S. Census data was delayed because of the COVID pandemic. So that information has been transmitted. In a normal non-pandemic world, we would have done this over the last 120 days, but that will have to happen sometime probably in the, the late fall, September, October, I think is the date that most people have penciled in to complete the redistricting process. The other portion is whether or not the legislature will have a real active role in determining how the state spends the $2.7 billion in COVID relief funds from the American Rescue Plan, the federal stimulus legislation that President Biden signed in March. We saw kind of at the end of session, a waterfall spending bill. So that's just making different priorities of how lawmakers intend to spend the money. There are many direct things in there, like backfilling the unemployment insurance trust fund. That'll help avoid businesses paying a higher unemployment insurance rate moving forward. But the rest are like a lot of very vague things, given how much money the state's going to get. You know, I think if you had told people at the start of the year that we're going to get $2.7 billion, no one really would have believed you because Nevada's never gotten that kind of money from the federal government before and kind of a one-shot spending. So I think there's a desire among all parties to kind of 
take some time. There's forms and applications on the governor's site. They're trying to solicit input and feedback from various groups on, you know, what are the, you know, what are the priority areas that we need in certain areas of the state? Where would this money make the biggest bang for the buck? So while we were asking lawmakers, you know, throughout the final weeks of session, when the next special session will be, because we're all very tired and want to take a vacation, I think that will also probably take some months. It wouldn't surprise me if they try to merge the two just to minimize cost. It does cost like quite a bit of money to put on a legislative session. So, but there's no solid date yet set. We asked the governor on Tuesday and he said, when it's necessary, we'll call one. So sometime in the future, probably the fall, but we'll see what happens. There's just a lot of logistics they have to go through. The state is receiving way more than just that $2.7 billion. There's, there's a bunch of like siloed off pots of money that will be coming into cities and, and the state. And so they are just really trying to dig through this all and get their bearings on what's already been taken care of and what do we need to use this unrestricted pot of money that came directly to the state? What's the best use of that? And they've got about five years to spend it. So the sense that I think we were getting at the very end is just, you know, they're in, they're not in a huge hurry to call this special session. All right. Well, hopefully that means we all have a little bit of a respite over the next couple of months. We'll have to leave it there for now, though. If you want to find more of our legislative coverage, you can head to our website, thenevadaindependent.com, where we have a comprehensive page dedicated to the legislature, as well as regular updates on every major move in Carson City when they happen. You can also go back and read basically a comprehensive (laughs) coverage of the legislature. We had, what did you say, Riley, 93 stories published in the month of May? Yeah, but who's counting? Yeah, no one's counting. None of us are counting. All right, Riley, Michelle, thanks for being here. Thanks so much, Jacob. Yeah, thanks, Jacob. If you'd like to listen to a longer version of this debrief with Riley, Michelle, and Jacob, you can find it by subscribing to our monthly newsletter, Soundcheck. The June 2021 edition that comes out the same day as this podcast episode will have the extended debrief. And that also applies to the following segment, where I sit down with editor John Ralston to talk about the session. You can subscribe to Soundcheck on our website. All right, so in in, in March of 2020, we hit the pandemic. And then in February of 2021, we started with the, the Nevada legislature. And kind of in between, there was a few things that happened, like the election and it's been kind of a crazy year so you know with, with all of this going on i feel like we haven't talked to uh, to pundit john ralston in a while the man the myth the legend also my boss so john welcome to the podcast let's chat about the nevada legislature thanks for joining me of course joey yeah so i mean let's just start with you know a thirty thousand view look on on this session this past session the 2021 session I think a lot happened. It was a weird year because of the pandemic and also because of the election. You know, I think that that, that did have some some sway and some changes that, you know, aren't normal in a, in a, in a legislative session. So what was your takeaway kind of overall when, when, when looking back on this? It's only been with the time of this recording two days since it's ended. Yeah. And, and that is actually a, a problem that I, that I think is instructive for all sessions, Joey's. It's hard to take a 30,000 foot look. You can't get up to 30,000 feet this soon from one, from one of these sessions. Uh, I, I think what you said at the beginning, though, is important in the sense that this is a session that is very different from uh, any other in Nevada history in the sense that for most of the session, the legislative building was closed, closed to lobbyists, closed, closed to the public. And so 
there was uh, even more secrecy, I think, than is usually coming in a legislative session, which uh, some people may not know the legislature is not bound by the open meeting law. So there's obviously some secrecy. And so I think that increased the skepticism about what was going on that already exists from the public and actually from lobbyists uh, and special interests as well. There were more surprises for the public and for special interests than ever before. There's a lot of frustration, I think, going into the last you know few weeks when it was finally all opened by people and not going, not knowing what's going on and what is a fairly opaque process to most normal human beings. I probably shouldn't say this, uh, but I will, Joy. But but I've covered every session since 1987, and even though uh, now I happily say that I have people for for for, for that, I. I spent very little time up there, but I even got a sense from our amazing team up there, the frustration to cover something that you had to essentially cover from from a distance. And so I think that contributed to the general lack of faith in what was going on. I, I know you said it's hard to have that 30,000 foot look right now because it's, you know, so recent, but there were some major things that passed. There were some huge things, you know, whether it's the mining tax, whether it's the public option or, or, you know, things that didn't make it like the death penalty. What are some of those? What are the things that really stood out to you this session that, that either made it or didn't? So my perspective on that is going to be a little bit different than, say, partisans or progressives or conservatives, all of whom will say terrible stuff happened or great stuff happened. And there's not much uh, in between. As always, it's, it's a little bit more nuanced. And again, we're so soon afterwards, Joey, there's always, I'd like to say that all sessions end ugly, you know, and some are uglier than, than, than others. This one was did not end as ugly as some of the others. And there was no mystery about whether things were going to get done by the last 48 or 72 hours because of the, the what is considered the most significant thing that happened by a lot of people, which is the mining tax compromise, which the Democrats wanted to get a mining tax passed. The entire session, they knew they needed a couple of votes from Republicans to get to two thirds, which is in the state constitution to pass that tax increase. And, and they did that rather easily. They always knew that Tom Roberts and Jill Tolles were, 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 were ripe targets in the assembly. And then after the assembly did it, the dam broke in the Senate and they got almost half of the state senators there, four of the nine to do it. So there wasn't much mystery there. The question is how significant uh, it is. And there was a lot of wrangling that went in and the Republicans got some more money put into what are known as opportunity scholarships, which is a much milder form of school choice than what they had actually passed a few sessions ago called education savings accounts. And the amount of money that is going to be raised from this uh, in the direct new mining tax, I believe it's about $90 million a year. There, there's, there, there are other provisions that, that, that target federal funding and, and bring that into education too, which they are bragging about getting hundreds of millions of dollars for education. But the amount of money that they got from the mining tax is not that significant, Joey, when you compare it to a, a essentially a $9 billion two-year budget. But what people forget who aren't familiar with this process and what I think is significant about it is that they created a new tax and put it in law. 
Uh, a few sessions ago, some people may remember that they created a new tax called the commerce tax, which taxed businesses for the first time essentially in this state in a significant way. It again, wasn't a tremendous amount of money, but now they have two new taxes that they put in law in the last few sessions. And most people, and I, I assure you the mining industry understands this, know that once you get something into law like that, it's very difficult to repeal it but it's quite easy to change the rates. And, and so they have that in law now. I think that's a significant uh, accomplishment. <clears throat> the other two things, I think you mentioned both of them, and let me just address them real quickly, is the public option. Nevada is going to end up being the second or third state in the country to have passed a public option bill. And, and, and the bottom line with that is, is that that is significant in the sense that we're the second or third state. However, Let's step back for a second. And Megan Messerly, our incredible healthcare reporter, did a lot of stories about this. It doesn't take effect until 2026. There has to be an actuarial study. And even though I just mentioned that it's important to get something into law like this, the, the makeup of the legislature could change. We could actually have a Republican governor as well. And I assure you, this will be one of the first things targeted if any of that happens. So there is a long way to go. Uh, before a public option actually becomes law in Nevada. And people should rem remember that. Yes, it's a significant piece of public policy, whether you like it or not, but it is not actually going to have any impact on any Nevadans' life for at least five years. The death penalty repeal, to me, in, in all the years I've watched this, I don't think I've ever seen anything handled so badly in, in, the, in the sense that the communication between legislators, between the legislative houses and between the governor and legislators was just so bad. We didn't know up until this, suddenly a press release came out from the governor uh, and then subsequent press releases from legislative leaders that it was dead. And, and, you know, a lot of progressives got mad at me when I said early on in this, you know, this is going to be really interesting to watch. The state Democratic Party wants this. But buckle up, I kept saying, because I knew you had two prosecutors in the Senate who were not necessarily in favor of doing this, although Melanie Scheibel's position seemed to change. And then you had a governor who I believe was getting a lot of political advice saying, don't sign a death penalty repeal. It's going to be bad for your reelection, no matter what polling information was put out, that most people still support the death penalty, even though it is rarely used. It is a tool that prosecutors want. So beside, beyond the inside politics of the district attorney from Clark County employing the two key legislators in the Senate not wanting to repeal the death penalty. This should never have gotten to the point that it did, Joey. You had the entire assembly vote on this and all these Democrats out there voting for it. And then there was no vote ever in the Senate in a, in a session controlled by Democrats. So I think there's a lot of frustration among progressives about that. I understand why. And I just think the entire leadership of the state Senate and the governor bear some responsibility for allowing it to, to fail the way that it failed. And that failed ugly. Yeah. Something you mentioned early on in that answer was was how crazy it gets at the end, right? It's always kind of this mad dash to make sure everything gets passed or, or dies or, you know, it's just it's just an insane, an insane thing that's going on. I, I was there the last couple of days and it was people running around. It was really fun for me to watch, but I'm sure for the lawmakers, it's maybe not as fun. And, and also politics isn't supposed to be fun. It's not supposed to be people running around going crazy. It should be, you know, deliberate and, and well thought out. And, and that always makes me think about the 120 days every two years. We're one of four states that does that. The governor had a, a press conference yesterday and was talking about the successes of the, the session. Of course, he's going to say that, right? He, he needs to say that 
especially with the Democrats in control. Is this an antiquated way of doing it? Should we keep doing it this way? Or or is this the way that Nevada should be doing it? The reasoning behind it in, the, in history is that it's, it limits government to when it, when it needs to happen. But we're probably going to see special sessions. So what's the point of having this, this short like, one thing every two years if we're just going to throw in special sessions when we need to anyway, right? It's an absolutely terrible process, Joey, and you described it very accurately in terms of what I have described for many years as the rush to close at the end. But even before the rush to close happens, but believe me, the rush to close causes stuff to be passed that we don't even know about yet. Language inserted in bills that will become clear later that, that is e- either really good or really bad. And by the way, it's probably really bad because it's not that well thought out, but it's not a deliberative process. It, it was more than... 20 years ago now that, that there were referenda on the, the, the 120 days that passed, I happily voted against both times, Joey, because I think not just because it's good for our business to have it go longer. And, and I remember the days, by the way, when there were 167 day sessions and we were there on July 4th and, and, and all that. But it, at least there was more time to consider things. There, I, I forget the numbers now, Joey, but there, since it passed, I believe that I believe the final vote was in '98, but I may be wrong. There have been special sessions following the regular sessions because they because of this process almost every other year. They may have missed one or two, but 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 there have been a lot of special sessions. There are going to be two special sessions, at least of the later this year, I, I would think. One has to deal with redistricting, which they had no chance to finish in, in a session with all of this going on. But it's not a good process. They, they, they rush. The deadlines are artificial. There's no reason to have an artificial date on it. Even conservatives who say, you know, we don't want the legislature up there making laws to make too many laws. I think they would prefer to see them pass good laws, uh, well thought out laws. So it's a terrible process. And there, there are a lot of things wrong with the process besides 120 days, but that's one of the worst. And, and, and we don't pay legislators anything and they don't have enough staff to help them fend off all, all of the spin they're getting from lobbyists. These are true citizen legislators, right? They're regular people for the most part, and they can't be expected to be subject matter experts on all the stuff that goes on uh, up there. I mean, think about the fact that they passed this huge energy bill, you mentioned it, which came out very late in the process. And I would believe that besides Chris Brooks, who proposed it and, and, and actually kept it secret, the only other person in that building who really understood that bill was Riley Snyder, one of our reporters. I doubt any other, le- I doubt any of the other legislators really understood what was going on in that bill. That's a terrible way to run a railroad, Joey. It really is. <laughs> yeah. It was definitely interesting to watch. (laughs) As always, thank you so much for talking with me. It's been been an interesting last couple months, and I'm sure we'll see a lot more interesting stuff coming this summer. But uh, get some rest, and uh, we'll enjoy enjoy the the heat while we can. (laughs) Thanks, Joey. Thank you for listening to this episode of Indie Matters. We'd like to thank Juliana Urtube, Jasmine Orozco-Rodriguez, Michelle Rundells, Riley Snyder, and John Ralston for being on the show this week. Leave us a review wherever you listen. Subscribe to our newsletter, Soundcheck, which comes out on the first Friday of every month. And email us with questions, comments, concerns, crunchy peanut butter recipes, recycling hacks, or whatever else you want to tell us about at joey at the or jacob at the Reno Band of People with Bodies wrote and performed our original theme song. If you want to hear more of their music, you can find them on Spotify or Bandcamp. There was additional music in today's episode from Lance Conrad and myself. 
Thank you for listening to Indie Matters. I'm your host, Joey Lovato. And I'm reporter and producer Jacob Solis. And we'll talk to you next week. Thank you.